Some of you who are here tonight know that yesterday was published the Proceedings of the Fine Printing Conference held at Columbia University last spring. There are flyers advertising this for those who wish to have a copy or another copy. This is the same state as last night's. copies of the book that the flyer advertises will be available for sale if you'll simply apply to Arnold Arcolio, who's over by the windows. During the reception that follows this lecture, you can arrange a purchase with him. We sold 28 copies of the thing last night, which bodes very well for the speed at which it's going to sell out. This is the fourth of a series of nine lectures sponsored by the Rare Book School of the School of Library Service. Next Monday, Chris Clarkson will be speaking on medieval and renaissance book bindings. Next Tuesday, Catherine Ponser will be speaking on the STC revision. And next Wednesday, Catherine Lieb will be speaking on uh, machine-readable databases with particular reference to BAM-BAM, a database concerned with the prevention and detection of theft of rare books. Our speaker this evening has a handout, and I wonder if anyone has not received it. Our speaker this evening is, of course, Mr. William H. Scheide, book collector and student of early printed books, uh, who wishes to begin his talk by uh, correcting the title that I gave for his speech. Mr. Scheide. Thank you. In regard to the title, why, um, there was a phrase left out, a printer's error, shall we say. Um, it's actually a little more classy than uh, uh, was uh, billed. I will, then, I will endeavor to give it an official reading. A feasibility study and some cocktail gossip. Cocktail and tavern gossip. A feasibility study and some cocktail and tavern gossip in 15th century Mainz. That's a good height, I hope. Um, now, but first of all, I think I should allude to the what Terry is politely called the handouts, uh, which I would call Xeroxes. Uh, there are basically four pages of them with a page of explanation. First page I would call the I page uh, because of the two initial eyes, uh, uh, which are the one on the left I call the marginal J and the one on the right I will call the indented I. Of course, these uh, colored slides in some respects would be better. You I bet you all know that, for example, the I page has colors on it, the original. Um, but then the colored slide comes and goes, and you, uh, disappears, and that's the end of it. And uh, here you can uh, have a choice of studying it or throwing it away. You can do whatever you like in each case. The uh, second page I would call the example page, uh, because uh, it's supposed to be uh, each one of those things is called an example one, two, and three, and so forth, up to six. 
So when I say see example six or example this uh, number or that number, I'm going to be referring to that page. That's the example page. And the third page, not surprisingly, you might call the illumination page uh, because there are pictures of animals and things there. Um, and the fourth one is um, uh, if you skip the typewritten page, you come to those five fragments, they could be called the Donatus page. Donatus wrote a Latin grammar in the, somewhere around the fourth century, I believe, which was a standard textbook for some time thereafter, including the 15th century. And uh, for novices or other enterprising students to learn their Latin. Um, and uh, this, um, the, with them, with, the, with this, these five fragments, there's, a, as you see, a typewritten page, which is, I will encourage you to note, is stapled to it, uh, in addition to the rather loose uh, little clip, uh, which will helps to explain it and uh, um, guide the eye through the rather esoteric 15th century uh, uh, fragments that have been in book bindings for probably between four and five hundred years. Um, uh, but uh, we'll get to that eventually, I trust. And I will refer to them as the spirit moves me, or in particular the script. Um, I'm happy to start uh, on it, the subject in general. Uh, there was a fellow who um, I used to talk to about um, other matters, not uh, early printed books, who said, uh, you, what you have are Grillen und Fantasien, which I believe roughly means grasshoppers and fantasies, or crickets and fantasies, and this is something like it. Um, and uh, if uh, some of you think that uh, too much fantasy is, is outrunning the, the uh, facts, why, well, you, you can get after me at the reception. I, uh, I'm going to lead with the chin on this matter, um, and I'll do my best to defend myself in as far as uh, there's any basis for defense. And I say, this talk is, a, frankly, a mixture of fact and fantasy. For me, interesting facts beget fantasies. And I start with what I consider to be one of the most fascinating of all facts, which is that the first significant combination in the history of the world, for perhaps for all we know in the history of the entire universe, of the alphabet and movable metal type, occurred not in a humble, crude, repellent, or pathetic object, but in numerous copies of an artifact of dignity, perfection, and even grandeur, the 42-line Bible, which I'm going to call B-42. With the publication of that book, the new art of printing burst full-grown upon the European world of manuscripts and scribes with the splendor and suddenness of an explosion. When one considers its stupendous effect upon all subsequent history, the mythical birth of Minerva, fully grown from the head of Jove, fades into nothingness. Need I repeat the time-worn platitude, truth is stranger than fiction. But I will add that, in cases like this, where truth is in fact so much stranger than fiction, the mind cries out irresistibly for explanation. I, for one, refuse to believe that B-42 sprang fully grown from the head of Henne Gensfleisch, or Jack Gooseflesh, who is usually known as Johann Gutenberg, or from the head of anyone else. But on the other hand, my fascination with this undeniable phenomenon forces my mind into a search for every conceivable trace or suggestion of earlier developments, no matter how ill-founded or tenuous they may seem. It is now believed, at least according to my understanding, 
that signs of a development or of some change of plan can be found in the Bible itself. Study of variations between copies has led to the conclusion that the earliest pages to be printed contained only 40 lines of type instead of the 42 lines of slightly smaller type which are found in most of the book. These same early 40-line pages also contain red printed headings which are lacking in the 42-line pages. But here again comes a surprise. For this evidence suggests not the evolution of small to great, nor of the simple to the complex, but of the colorful to the plain, of the larger to the smaller. In other words, it suggests the reverse of what might have been expected. But if taken seriously, as I am inclined to do, it opens up a perspective for considering some other facts which have no explicit connection with the Bible. The B-42 type, whose first dated appearance is in some of the indulgences dated 1454, is the smallest of four closely related fonts used in Mainz in the 1450s. In order of increasing size, the other three are the B-36 type, also occurring in 54 indulgences. You can see it in example one, the example page. The small Salter type found in the Constance Missal, which is often thought to be the earliest of the four, and you can see that in examples five and six, and the large Salter type, of which no trace seems to exist before 1457. And that can be seen in examples two, three, and four. The question we would now ask is, if in B42, the 40-line type was filed down into smaller 42-line type, might the B36 type, or the still larger and earlier small Salter type, ever have been considered as a possible Bible type? In that case, what is found in B42 would turn out to be merely the final stage of a longer process which would explain the concurrent existence of all three types, especially the B36 type, which was later used in the 36-line Bible. But this would further expand the conception of an ambitious original plan which was successively reduced in scope. A further problem involving the B36 type can be seen in the five fragments of Donatus's Latin grammar, shown in the, in the Donatus Xerox page. Actually, they share the same text, but it is set in five different ways. This can be checked by looking for the word commune, the first word in fragment number 8676, up there at the top left. In the other fragments, it is printed with the, in, beginning with the inverted C, as, or backward C, as an abbreviation for C-O-M, which makes it comparatively easy to recognize. In number 8681, it ends the first full line, practically at the end of it. In numbers 8682 and 8685, it occurs in the middle of line two, with that, beginning with that backward C. And in 8686, it can be seen toward the right of the fourth line. The sheet accompanying the Xerox, which transcribes some of the text and explains some of the abbreviations, is meant to help you to agree with me that these five fragments represent five different settings of the same text. And you don't have to do it, come to that conclusion right now, but if you want to, you could look at it 
to your heart's content at any time later. For example, when I'm talking. Um, it would therefore appear that there were at least five different editions of Donatus's Latin grammar printed with B36 type. That's, that would be a minimum if, if, uh, if this is correct. One edition would surely have been simpler. Why was the same text set five times? Or more? Another consideration pointing toward a more ambitious original plan was suggested some years ago by Helmut Lehmann Haupt in his book Gutenberg and the Master of the Playing Cards. The Master of the Playing Cards is a title given to an anonymous artist whose work is known through representations of animals, birds, flowers, and men occurring on playing cards, some of them in apparently unmotivated positions. And at least some cases, the drawing looks as though it had been impressed into the playing card by some sort of stamping device or tool. If you accept Lehman Haupt's argument, the master of the playing cards was employed by Gutenberg to make mechanically decorated borders for B42 using these drawings. According to Lehman Haupt, the project was abortive. The artist was dismissed, who thereupon used his drawings and intended for B42 on playing cards. If you do not accept Lehman Haupt's argument, it is nevertheless generally agreed that the master of the playing cards flourished in the Rhineland in the 1450s and a number of his designs occur in at least one B42 in ways that explain the position better than do the playing cards. And if you look at the illumination page, uh, especially uh, mention the bear uh, climbing in the Bible, climbing up the beanstalk uh, and uh, quite unmotivated in the playing card. Um, it accordingly seems possible that some sort of connection might have existed between the master of the playing cards and the first printing press. All this suggests a further possibility involving the famous two colored initials, which are the great glory of the Psalters of 1457 and 1459. In the 1457 Psalter alone, no less than 60 letters of large Psalter type have been filed down to make room for the indented areas of 43 initials. Now, if you look at the Example four and the indented I. Take, for example, the indented I first. It's at the top of the pile. Um, and look under the indented I. You'll see the tall S. you see the word insidious. And look at the S and the D. Compare it with the uh, S and the D in the, well, the first line of big type, Illumina quaesumus do mine, I imagine. Um, there's a tall S and a D the way it ought to be. And under the I, you see the tall S and the D file down uh, to squeeze under it. There, uh, that's, there was a two example, and then the, I guess there was another one. Um, I said example four, I think. Well, there is some there in example four. The uh, tall S again is certainly filed. You, all you have to do is compare it with the S in the line below it with SU, probably dicta sunt. Uh, something's gone on there. And um, it seems clear that the indented initials and the li large sorter type were incompatible as to sizes. But the indented initials, would, which fit with such difficulty into two lines of large sorter type, would be fully compatible and fit with no difficulty at all into four lines of B36 type, as can be seen in examples one and two with a millimeter scale. And the magic number to look at there is 31 millimeters. 
which is about the height of that D in example two, and you look at 31 millimeters in example one, there'd be all kinds of room around there. It'd be a great room to spare. Um, curiously enough, the initial F, really impossible for regular use with a two-line indentation of large salter type, has a unique shape and size. It seems planned partly for four lines of B36 type and partly for three lines of the still earlier small salter type. If you look at example three, uh, measuring it right through the middle, there you get the 31 millimeters. And if you look at it in example four, uh, the complete initial at the right edge is um, 36 millimeters. And 36 millimeters, if you look at examples five and six, is about what you need to, for three lines of um, small solder type. Um, that's a unique size, that F that they write. I thus tend to suspect that the two colored initials in the solders played some sort of role in the early plans for the Bible. But all this sort of thing, larger types, mechanically decorated borders, two colored printed initials bespeak really grandiose plans. Were they realistic? Could they be afforded? In the 1923 supplementary volume to the 1913 B-42 facsimile, Paul Schwenker discussed the problem of estimating the costs of printing B-42 at some length. If we may accept his figures, which I have not checked as ballpark estimates, he certainly projects the picture of an economy that would be unrecognizable today. Certainly the only customer who could both read and pay the enormous prices for manuscripts was the institution of the church. And here we may recall the heavy ecclesiastical emphasis in the output of Fust and Schaefer, Europe's first publishing firm. Our attention is therefore directed for economic reasons into a religious direction. As an economic unit, I will use the term man year, meaning the amount of money needed to pay one workman in Gutenberg's shop for one year. Schwenke estimated that the overall costs of printing B-42 amounted to 125 man years, by any standards, a substantial sum. But the 1450 price in Strasbourg for a manuscript Bible rubricated and bound was three man years, which is a pretty high price for one book, uh, new book, I mean, and a later price in Altenburg for an edition of the 1460 Catholicon was about two man years. That was probably a markup by a, um, a middleman. Uh, thus, if B42 were to sell for half or a little less of the Strasbourg manuscript Bible price, the cost could be recovered from the sale of 100 copies. Any additional sales would represent pure profit. Thus, the following question inevitably comes into focus. What printed book would be most likely to produce a large profit? In particular, would a large book such as a Bible, which is obviously require a very large investment, be more likely to produce a satisfactory return than one or more small books requiring the risk of much less capital. Here for a moment we may sit back and enjoy a little armchair hindsight. Between 1455 and 1462, there were published four folio editions of the Latin Bible, surely at least 500 copies, quite possibly near a thousand. Mentelin in Strasbourg, who printed one of them, and Fust and Schaefer in Mainz, who were involved with two of them, continued in business. The B-36 type of the remaining Bible 
was acquired by Albrecht Pfister in, in Bamberg. Gutenberg retired to Mainz to what I would think was a well-deserved rest. Seventy-six further editions of the Latin Bible were printed before 1501, an average of almost two per year. Such facts and evidence suggest rather strongly that in the 1450s there was a lucrative market for a folio Latin Bible printer. But I would not assume or expect that in 1450 all this was as obvious as it is to us. If B-42 was ever to be printed, several extraordinary things must have happened. For example, some person or persons must have become extremely concerned to discover what book would be the most marketable. Somebody had to be the first in the history of the world or of the universe to risk an amount of money equal to the annual wages of something like 125 skilled workmen. If their average annual wage was $16,000, rather modest, if I might say, by today's standards, the total capital required would be $2 million. In 15th century purchasing power, the actual sum may well have been considerably more than that. The principal, if not the sole investor, must therefore have, had, have possessed an unusually large bank balance and or a high credit rating. But he must have had some unusual personal qualities as well. The most obvious one is courage which by skeptical neighbors might be regarded as foolhardiness, if not absolute insanity. Such judgments would be abetted by other qualities that the investor was entitled to have. Qualms, doubts, a strong tendency to be temperamental and difficult. We assume that all these features, including, of course, the sizable bank balance, applied to one man, Johann Fust of Mainz. How then might Fust's initial qualms and doubts be addressed? Common sense would suggest that the questions formulated above on the relative marketability of books be addressed to as large a number of persons as could be reached. To scribes and scriptoria, to archdiocesan record keepers, to church libraries near and far. In other words, the only feasible course of action would be what is now called a feasibility study, the first phrase in my title. With the aid of our armchair hindsight, we can conjecture some of the answers. From the scribes and scriptoria, our biggest backlog of orders is for Bibles. It'll take us years, if not decades, to fill them. From the archdiocese and record keepers, there is a pitiful lack of Bibles everywhere. The Bible is far and away the most needed book. And from church librarians, our general effectiveness as well as the worship services themselves are suffering from an acute shortage of Bibles. At any rate, whatever the answers may have been, they must have been such that Fuss, in spite of all his temperament, doubts, and qualms, drew the following two conclusions. One, a folio Latin Bible had the greatest potential of any book for producing a large profit. And two, no other book would bring the new art of printing to the attention of European book buyers more quickly and powerfully. But since the only European books then existing were manuscripts, the first productions of the printing press must strive to imitate their predecessors. To this end, vellum was to be preferred over paper as far as practicable, and a complicated system of abutting letters must be cast to reproduce the symmetry of vertical lines used in manuscripts from which the B36 and B42 types were developed. Compare, for instance, in example four, the tops of the ordinary U's in lines one and two, each following a tall S with the top of the abutting U in line five, the bottom line. And you'll see that they're re recast letters completely, and that's one of, only one of many such examples in this very complicated system that they used. 
Naturally, the type must include the many abbreviations developed by the medieval scribes. There should be red printed headings, elaborately designed colored initials, and perhaps even decorated borders, all done with mechanical means. We assume that Proust was assured by Gutenberg that every one of these features had become technically feasible and could be used in the projected Bible. In some such context, we, assume, we imagine that Proust gave the order, which he must have given in some context, to proceed. At that time, we'll assume also that the principal font of type in the hands of Gutenberg's press, pressmen was a small solder type, which in what are assumed to be its earliest extant examples, for instance, the Constance Missal and the first pages of the 1457 Psalter is the only type seriously deficient in abutting forms. The type designers, very possibly headed by Peter Schaefer, were engaged on two fronts. First, to produce the new B36 type with an adequate abutting system. And second, to produce initials that would fit a four-line indentation of B36 type. Now, all medieval Latin Bibles began with the preface of St. Jerome, which in turn opened with the words Frater Ambrosius. Thus, the first initial in any such Bible would be an F. Examples one and three show how the F was at first, that is, working from the left, designed to fit a four-line indentation of B36 type. But when the designer discussed it with the printers, who knew only the small solder type, they protested that it was too narrow. And so the right side was broadened to fit three lines of small solder type, as can be seen in examples four, five, and six. Um, at least that's my fantasy about that one. However, if the printers then struck off a page or two of Jerome's main preface with this initial and the small solder type, we can be sure that the latter was soon replaced with a new B36 type to which the outsized F would have somehow to be adapted. It wouldn't be hard, though, probably, because it was at the top of the page and they, they would uh, adjust for it. Jerome followed his main preface with a shorter introduction to the Pentateuch, which began desiderii mei. And in medieval Bibles, the initial D opening this essay was always smaller than the F of Frater Ambrosius. Here, the ornament of the D is many times shorter than the ornament of the F and the height of the D fits four lines of indented B36 type. You can see in examples one and two, that if you remember, 31 millimeters is what uh, the magic number. The third initial that was probably designed at this time is the marginal J to begin Genesis 1-1 in principio, in the beginning. Uh, and uh, that J, I might say, is in the indented I shown in the, in the I Xerox page, are the only Psalter initials that are interchangeable. There are no other initial in the Psalter of which two are two different examples. Indented I is, a, is a more, certainly the more practical one in the Psalter. It can be used anywhere uh, down to two lines from the bottom, but you cannot use a marginal J at the bottom. Uh, it is uh, much less practical in the Psalter than the indented I. But the marginal J is a very beautiful letter, and uh, uh, why was it devised? That, 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 its presence in the Psalter is, is problematical. It seems to me um, most likely explainable if it had already existed previous to the Psalter for some other reason. For example, the one I'm, a reason such as I'm suggesting uh, to start Genesis in this, this prehistoric Bible 
uh, conception. Evidence that, uh, with, with these three initials, uh, indented F, indented D, and marginal J, it would be possible to print a medieval Latin Bible in B36 type to the end of the book of Genesis. Evidence suggesting that something of this sort may actually have occurred is provided by a defective B36 paper proof sheet of Genesis 3 and 4 preserved at Krakow. And I, I probably should have given you a facsimile of that, but uh, just take my word for it. The fragment is printed on only one side. The other side contains manuscript accounts of a late 14th century tailor in Mainz. This in turn suggests an origin at Mainz rather than at Bamberg of the Bible printing proof. Carl Wehmer, who published the facsimile of it, has estimated that it must have contained 40 lines of B36 type, which would bring the printed area very close to that found in the 1459 Psalter, which is substantially larger than B42 or the 1457 Psalter or the 1459 Durandus. Uh, judging by their colophon dates, the Durandus and the 1459 Psalter must have been printed pretty much at the same time. The Durandus has about the same printed area as B42, so does B36, at that time very probably being printed at Bamberg. It is accordingly quite possible that at least some of the presses used for B42 were in 1459 no longer in Mainz, at least one gone to Bamberg, for example. If therefore Fust and Schaefer, having started to print the Durandus on the remaining B42 press or presses, felt compelled to meet a sudden order for a second Psalter, they may have resorted to an earlier, larger press, which Gutenberg had left behind because it was too large and had not been used for a number of years. Such a line of reasoning leads to the suspicion that the 1459 Psalter, a copy of which is often on view in, at the Pierpont Morgan Library, was printed on the press originally planned for a pre-B42 Bible with a page of 40 lines of B36 type. Obviously, in such an event, a very sumptuous Bible had been begun, very imposing and with all kinds of, uh, it would have been a much more powerful explosion than resulted, finally. We will assume that enough of this very sumptuous Bible was printed for Foos to make a relatively informed extrapolation of the probable time schedule and of his costs. He was not at all pleased, and the program and budget were reduced in no numerous ways. The master of the playing cards, if he'd ever been employed, went off the payroll. The relatively expensive vellum was largely replaced with paper. Smaller presses were prepared, printed initials abandoned, and perhaps most importantly, the B36 type was replaced by the new, smaller B42 type in its 40-line version. Thus, a supply of vellum, the printed initials, and the whole font of B36 type were removed from the Bible project. But even these changes proved insufficient. Printing the Bible in the new B42 format had not progressed very far when someone, presumably Foust, decided that the type was still too large and must be made even smaller. 
since the columns could not be lengthened, all that the workman could do was to reduce the type slightly in length so that two more lines could occupy the same space. And the 40-line type became the 42-line type, as it is generally known. I have been inclined to question the rationality of this step, since the work involved in changing the type size, which I assume was not inconsiderable, accomplished a saving of only some 5% in the amount of paper. Perhaps Foust was be being temperamental. Another change was the elimination of printed red headings. Initials and headings were now to be supplied in manuscript, and a printed list of such headings was included in each sale of a finished copy. All these changes resulted in the more efficient use of time and resources, but now came a further development. It was decided to increase the size of the edition. Perhaps the feasibility study had been revised upward, and Foust now felt more optimistic about making a profit. At any rate, it meant repaint, reprinting all the pages printed previously to the decision to enlarge. Additional presses were installed, and work continued year after year. Schwenke's estimate as to the final size of the edition was 150 paper and 35 vellum copies. In the meantime, Gutenberg's B36 type lay on his shelves together with a residual supply of vellum. We will assume that he had no objection to becoming a job printer and imagine the following manner in which such a business might have been built up. To this end, we will enter the palace of the Archbishop of Mainz about the year of 1452 or 3 and observe the Archbishop, his secretary, and two abbots, whom we will call A1 and A2, enjoying cocktails in the manner of the time. We pick up the conversation as the two abbots lament the passing of the good old days. In particular, A1 bemoans the lack of Durandus's Rationale Divinorum Officiorum, the standard textbook that teaches novices how to become priests. And the names these authors are somewhat similar. Don't get them confused. Durandus writes the text, Latin textbook, and Donatus writes the grammar to teach him how to read the, the um, Latin book. A2. Even if we had a Durandus at our abbey, it would be of no use because my novices cannot read Latin and there's no grammar to teach them. A1. I heard that there may be a copy of Donatus's Latin grammar in our library, but even if there is one, what good would it do since only one novice could use it at a time? Secretary. I have heard that there is somebody here in Mainz who has a new way of making many copies of the same book at one time. A2. I would certainly like that man to make a lot of Donatus's for me. Then each novice could learn his own Latin and be able to read the Durandus. A1. I could use some too. Epilogue. Gutenberg prints a small edition of Donatus's Latin grammar for A2, using B36 type in a 27-line format on vellum. The second cocktail scene occurs sometime later in the Abbey of A1. A1 and A2 are talking together. A1, I have been wanting to ask you for some time how you found those new multiple copies of Donatus. A2, absolutely marvelous. With a Latin grammar for each novice, our abbey has become a heaven on earth. A1. I guess I simply must order some myself. Epilogue. Gutenberg resets his B36 type and prints a second edition for A1. The thir third scene occurs in the abbey of A2. <laughs> uh, A2 and a new abbot, whom we shall call A3, are talking. A3. How are your novices doing? A2. Formerly very poorly, but lately much better since they have mastered their Latin. A3. How is that? A2. 
There used to be no grammars to teach them, but lately we acquired a fine supply of Donatuses. A3, that is remarkable. Where did you get them? A2, a citizen of Mainz has a new way of producing many copies. We have really found it most helpful. A3, that is exactly what I need for my own novices. Epilogue, Gutenberg again resets his B36 type and prints the third edition of Donatus's grammar for A3. The next cocktail scene introduces two new abbots whom we shall call A4 and A5. They are talking in the abbey of A4. A4, I remember you told me you were having trouble with your novices. A5, that is right, they are totally ignorant. A4, I have solved that problem of my novices by teaching them to read Latin. A5, how did you do that? A4, I acquired a supply of Donatus's grammars. A5, wherever did you find them? A4, A3 told me of a mite citizen who has a new way of making many copies of the same book at one time. A5, this is unbelievable, but please give me his name. Epilogue, Gutenberg printed at least five different editions of Donatus's Latin grammar on vellum, using his B36 type as shown in the Donatus Xerox. In this way, he recovered some of the cost of his excess vellum and found profitable use for his idle B36 type. We now move down the social scale from abbots to workmen, from the luxurious archiepiscopal palace and the comfortable abbeys to a dark, crude tavern in Mainz. Two of Gutenberg's employees in their work clothes crouch over a dirty table with a sputtering candle holding their tankards. Their names are Bertold Ruppel and Johann Mendelin. Ruppel, how long do you think this job is going to take? Sometimes it seems to me that it is never going to end. Mendelin, oh, I don't know. Old Gooseflesh is certainly a persistent bugger. I have been watching him for a long time, ever since he was in Strasbourg, where I came from. And you have to grant that the addition of that new press ought to speed things up a little. Rappel. But do you really think it will ever pay off? Mentlin. I certainly have been wondering about that myself, along, I suppose, with everybody else. But I guess all I can say is, if it does prove to be a good thing, I'm getting out of here just as fast as I can and setting up my own business back in Strasbourg. I'm not working for what they pay here if I can make 50 times as much. If Foos can do it, and I can. And thus B-42 lurched along until most probably sometime in 1455 the printing was complete. All books of the Old and New Testaments except those beginning with I or J have been provided with indentations for opening manuscript initials. Individual gatherings are now taken from their respective piles and assembled, hopefully in proper order, into complete copies designed to be bound into two volumes with a second volume beginning with a book of Proverbs. A table of rubrications was provided. A purchaser would acquire only the unbound sheets. How or whether he bound them, how or to what extent he inserted manuscript initials and headings, or drew red lines through capital letters, was his own decision. Vellum copies, though printed last, may have been offered first, especially to rich customers, whether or not the price of a vellum copy was higher than the price of a paper copy. Did Foust make a profit on his enormous, bold, and risky investment into a field so untrodden and unknown? We, all, we have already used our hindsight to conclude that he must have found it financially rewarding. Here we may mention two or three immediate events which point in the same direction. First of all, Gutenberg left Foust's employment, took his B-36 type and probably at least one press to Bamberg, and there printed the B-36 Bible after which he evidently felt financially able to retire and return to Mainz. 
Second, Mendelin left Fuss employment, returned to his native Strasbourg, promptly printed a folio Latin Bible, and became one of the great printers of the 15th century. Third, after seven years, Fust, in partnership with Schaefer, now his son-in-law, thought it worthwhile to publish a second folio Latin Bible, 1462, the first printed Bible with a date, which was even reprinted in 1472 after Fust's death. The printing firm of Fust and Schaefer endured well into the 16th century. Because of these and other facts previously mentioned, we conclude that Gutenberg, Mendelin, and Fust were convinced that Fust's investment had turned out successfully. So for our final cocktail party, we return triumphantly to the palace of the Archbishop of Mainz, where we find our old friends, the Archbishop, the Archbishop's secretary, and A1, the first of the series of abbots, who had been bemoaning the lack of Durandus's textbook to teach novices how to become priests. But the Archbishop has invited another guest, Johann Fust, who has come to exhibit a copy of his new B42. Archbishop, it is a pleasure to welcome you, Mr. Fust. Fust, it is a pleasure to be here, Your Excellency. A1, Mr. Fust, we can never thank you enough for those Donatuses. They have made all the difference to our novices. Archbishop, but Mr. Fust does not only produce little grammars. Just look at this magnificent Bible. A1, after recovering from the shock of seeing the Bible. Mr. Fust, could you print a Durandus? It would be most helpful for our novices now that they can read Latin. Archbishop, but I would add this word of advice, Mr. Fust. Use only vellum. Paper destroys the dignity of a book. Secretary, I am sure we will have many other books to suggest to you, Mr. Fust. Fust, thank you all very, very much. I must hasten to state that, however, since the completion of the Bible, I have lost nearly all of my best workmen. The new apprentices do wretchedly, and it is most annoying. I will be most happy to oblige your reverences just as soon as I feel that I once again have an adequate staff. And, Your Excellency, when I printed Durandus, all the copies will be on vellum. And please be assured that I will always be most sensitive to the needs of all your reverences for appropriate books. Thank you.